Hello and welcome to Through the Bible with Les Feldick, an inspirational and informative half hour of insight into the heart of Scripture. In addition to teaching the Bible, Les is a full-time rancher, having a down-to-earth practical teaching style that makes the Bible come to life. All programs are available on audio tape, videotape, and in printed form. At the end of the program, there will be an address where you can contact the ministry. And now, here's Les Feldick with today's lesson. The kingdom began with Abraham, not Adam. It began with Abraham. And that's why the genealogy only goes that far. Now, we covered that, like I said, uh, in three or four programs back. All right, now as we go through that generation uh, genealogy, just briefly, I think it's interesting that there are only four women listed in the whole genealogy. Only four. And yet they're the very four women that every one of us we'd just as soon leave out. But God sees fit to put them in here. And I'll point them out to you, and then you can figure out why I said what I said. But in verse 3, you have the first one, where Judas begat Pharisees and Zerah of Tamar. Now, you've got to go back to Genesis, and you remember that Tamar played the prostitute. Pharisees begat Esram, Esram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and so on and so forth. Now you come down to verse 5. And Solomon begat Boaz of who? Rahab. Now, again, what was Rahab? A harlot, a Gentile, non-Jew. And remember, God had always mandated that the Jews were to have nothing to do with these Gentiles. And yet, here we have one in the genealogy. And then the next one. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. And where did Ruth come from? Moab. And what were the Moabites? Taboo. Don't you have a thing to do with the Moabites? Because you remember, they began with the ancestral relationship of Lot and his daughter. And so the Jew was to have nothing to do with the Moabites. Yet here we have a Moabite girl in the genealogy. Now, I think all this just points up that... Now, I think of a verse. I can't help it. Romans. I told you we'd stay in Matthew, but uh, Romans, chapter 5, verse 20. And I think this best explains, because even though we're back here in the Jewish economy, basically under the law, yet it's the same God. God hasn't changed. God has never changed from eternity past, nor will He into eternity future. It's the same God. But the only thing that changes is his responsibilities that he puts on the human race. All right, now look what Romans chapter 5 says in verse 20. And again, this is Paul writing, and he says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Now, what's the offense? Sin. The law entered so that sin could be seen for all of its awfulness. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You see that? In other words, even back here now to the genealogy, as low as some of these people may have fallen, yet what was able to go beyond that? 
the grace of God. See, even though we're not under the program of grace, yet God's grace has always been evident. Even when Adam sinned, go all the way back into the garden. When Adam sinned, and I appreciate when people write in and say they never saw this before. Adam and Eve didn't go running looking for God. But what happened? God went looking for them. Now, what was the basis for God looking for these creatures who had violently disobeyed Him? His grace. See? His grace. And so He reached down and He brought Adam and Eve back into a relationship with Himself. And so it is, the nation of Israel would turn their back on Jehovah. And how many times didn't they go to the very depths of rejecting? And yet, what caused God to always go back to them? His grace, see? And the same way with these four women in the genealogy. It just shows again that even though these women were in direct opposition to everything God had instructed, yet in His mercy and His grace, He's able to even bring them into a place of renown by being in the genealogy. All right, now we're going to move on out of the genealogy, and we come to verse 18, where it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, in other words, before their marriage had been consummated, before they had come together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately, in other words, to keep the whole thing secret. But while he thought on these things, verse 20, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, and saying, Joseph, thou son of David. Now keep all this in mind. Why is this instituted here? To show that Jesus is in that royal family. You remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Now, this goes way back in our studies. What did God promise David? That beginning with him would be a royal house, a royal family. And down through the ages, that royal family would be the ancestors then of the king. And that, of course, is who Jesus is presented as. And again... Don't run ahead of what has been revealed so far. All we're going to understand in the opening part of the New Testament is that the king has now made his appearance. The king. And that's all we're going to see first. Later on, it's going to be revealed, of course, that he's going to be the redeemer. And then still later on, further revelations. But for now, just accept the fact that here he comes to be the king of Israel. All right? Uh, the son of David. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now here comes the basis then of our doctrine of the virgin birth. Now there are a lot of people that can't buy it, but if they can't, they're doomed because that's part of our salvation, that Christ was virgin born. And of course the reason being as I taught again way back there in Genesis, beginning with Eve, that the blood of the mother never goes into the fetus, into the baby. The mother's blood has nothing to do with the fetus. That comes only from the father. Now, this is basic 
even though it's a physiological fact, yet it is a basis of the virgin birth of Christ and that he could be sinless and that his blood was divine, untainted, and that he was incorruptible. Now, had Mary's blood interchanged with the fetus while he was in the womb, then that wouldn't have been true. But physiologically, we know it's true that the blood of the mother never enters the blood of the little one. I told my class a while back, I was reading uh, one of the cattle magazines just a few weeks ago on experiments in breeding and so forth, and the same thing. The blood of the sire, I mean the blood of the mother of the calf, never enters the calf. The whole blood system of the fetus, of whatever it is, comes from the father. I showed it to my wife. I said, see, people sometimes think I'm out in left field. I know they do. But it's a scientific fact that the blood system comes from the father and not the mother. And that's why the scripture maintains then that Jesus did not have a human father. Consequently, he didn't have the human blood. He had divine blood. And that's why the virgin birth is so basic to our salvation, because if it had been any other way, he couldn't have shed sinless, divine blood, but he did. All right, so that which was conceived of her was of the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, because it had been spoken again in the Old Testament. Verse 23, behold, a virgin shall be with child. In other words, without benefit of a human father. And she shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and called his name Jesus. Now remember, Jesus is the name of his humanity, of his humility. It's Jesus who, upon whom is laid the sins of the world. Now... I think I threw it out on the program several months ago. How many of you realize that the disciples or any of the other followers of the Lord ever addressed him as Jesus during his earthly ministry? Didn't know that? Well, you check me out. They never called him just Jesus. He was either the Lord Jesus or they referred to him as Master, usually Master, but they never called him just Jesus. And very seldom does Paul use just Jesus. I think it's once or twice in all his epistles. But he, too, always refers to him as the Lord Jesus Christ, or as Christ, or as Lord Jesus. And see, the reason is now that after he had suffered the humiliation of his humanity, and he took upon that humanity the sins of the world, now in resurrection power, he becomes again the glorified Lord of glory, and as such is where we know him. We know the resurrected Christ, the one who died for our sin. Now, that's important. I think a lot of people are missing this. Uh, I've made mention of the fact that many of you probably remember coming out of the 60s, we had a lot of the Jesus people. And oh, they made a big ado about Jesus. But see, they knew nothing of his resurrection power, 
They knew nothing of his saving power. They were just constantly referring to his good earthly life. And listen, no one is saved by simply believing that Jesus did good. That's not salvation. And we'll be pointing that out as we come up through the Gospels. All right, now then. We come into chapter 2, and we have the account, of course, of the wise men making their appearance. And I'm not going to take all this because you all know that better than I do, and how they had to flee from the area of Bethlehem because of Herod's decree. And then they went down into Egypt because, again, prophecy had said that he would come up out of Egypt. And then they went up to Nazareth because prophecy had said that he would be a Nazarene. He would be a citizen of Nazareth. And then I think I'm going to take the time now to just come right on into chapter 3. We're going to move on from the account of his birth because, like I said, I think most of you know that in and out better than I. But now in chapter 3, we are introduced to John the Baptist. And remember, John the Baptist was a prophesied Old Testament prophet. He was to be the herald or the announcer of the king. And he is prophesied back there in the Old Testament, plain as day. All right, now here he comes. Chapter 3, verse 1. Do you like a verse for that? I see some of you writing some notes. Just come back to Malachi, just a few pages to the left. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Now, I haven't mentioned before, but while you're looking for that, I want to throw this out. Remember, too, that between the book of Malachi and the appearance of the angel announcing the birth of John the Baptist and to Joseph and Mary is 400 years. Now, that's a long time. We call it the 400 years of silence. Now, up until that time, from, you might say, Abraham until Malachi, God had been revealing himself through the prophets and through various other means to the nation of Israel. But after the book of Malachi was written completing the Old Testament, 400 years elapse until God makes his next move with the nation of Israel. Now, that's just an historical fact, but I think it's interesting. All right, now Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he, the messenger, shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek. Now, remember, the Lord here is Jehovah, God the Son. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the what? Covenant. Oh, I'm glad we came back here. The covenant again, see? The messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, that's John the Baptist being promised that he would come on the scene, be the messenger to announce the king. And the king, remember, is the fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant. I'll keep putting it on the board until you see it in your sleep. He'd been promised a nation of people, that is, Abraham had been, a nation of people. They would end up in a geographical area of land. And then at some future time, God would come and be their king as well as their redeemer. 
Now, that's all in that covenant. And then, of course, after that covenant made with Abraham, then you came to the covenant of law. You had the covenant that God made with David concerning the royal family and uh, the covenant he made with Moses concerning the land of Palestine. Now, those are all separate covenants, but they were all under the Abrahamic covenant. And now here it is. They've been a nation of people for 1,500 years since they came out of Egypt. They have now been in the land and out and back in it again after having been in Babylon. Here they are, and now's the king. This is time for the king. All right, verse 1 of chapter 3. So in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Matthew chapter 3. And here's John's message. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now remember, I closed with that in the last half hour. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what made the kingdom at hand? The king. See? The king. Now, when the king went back to heaven at the ascension of Acts chapter 1, where now then is the kingdom? Well, it's in heaven. See? It's in heaven. When the king comes back to earth, where will the kingdom be? On earth. So wherever the king is, you have the kingdom. All right, now the king is here. And the kingdom of heaven is just over the horizon. This is his whole scope of approaching the nation of Israel, but it's in fulfillment of the covenants. That's what's promised. All right, now let's move on. Verse 3. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. See, it's also in Isaiah. I took you back to Malachi, but Isaiah also speaks of John the Baptist, and he says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. All right, you all know about John, and now I'd like to have you come quickly on down to verse 6. And they were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I had a question from a listener the other day concerning baptism, and uh, in my answer I wrote, and I'm going to share it now with the whole answer, with the whole uh, class and the whole television audience. I said, can you think of any other subject in Christianity that will cause more controversy, more anger, more disruption of fellowship, and more everything else that you can think of than baptism? You ever thought of that? Oh, I've experienced it over and over. See, where I can just see people who seemingly had real sweet fellowship until all of a sudden they realized they didn't agree on baptism, and then there went their friendship. Now, there's something wrong. When, when something can cause such division amongst believers, there's something wrong. And I guess I'd have to say it's because, you see, we have so many different views of this baptism. Uh, some feel it is mandatory for salvation, and some, of course, that it has nothing to do with salvation. Some in sprinkling, some in immersion. And you've got all these conflicting ideas. And I think it's a pity. 
But here, now we're going to see what the Scripture says. Here, John, no doubt about it, maintains that if they're going to show saving faith in the fact that the king and the kingdom is here, they would have to show that with what? The baptism of repentance. See? And that's why it's always called the baptism of repentance. The two could not be separated. And so as these Jews were repenting then of their, of their failure of the system of law and everything else, they were now preparing their hearts and minds for the king and his kingdom. All right. Now then my question. Why baptism? That throws a curve in almost everybody. Why? Well, now remember who we're dealing with. We're dealing with the Jew. And if you go back again to the Old Testament economy, in order for the priest to be prepared for, especially like the Day of Atonement, or even as a young priest was being made ready to enter into the priesthood at the age of 30, what was the first thing they had to do? Wash. Wash. And wash some more. See? I mean, throughout the whole system then of the uh, law of Moses, there was that constant washing to show to the very mind of Israel that sin was a filthy thing. See, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with sin. And that sin was, was reckoned as filthy. That's why leprosy is used as a picture of sin. Now, most of us don't know how horrible a leprous person can look, especially in the final stages. It was beyond comprehension. And that's what sin does, see? All right. So you remember that Naaman, the Syrian general, had leprosy. And his servant just begged him to go to the prophet of Israel and be healed. Remember? So he ends up with Elisha or Elijah. I always get the two gentlemen mixed up. But anyhow, he goes to one of the prophets, Elijah or Elijah. And the old prophet doesn't even come out himself. He sends his servant out and he tells that big Syrian general to do what? Go dip in Jordan seven times. Well, the old general said, now, wait a minute. There's a river up in my home city of Syria. That's a lot cleaner water than that old Jordan. But that wasn't what God had said through the prophet. He said, you dip in Jordan. Well, he finally did. And what happened? He was healed of his leprosy. Well, now the water didn't do it. God did it because Naaman, reluctant as he was, was still exercising faith. But that dipping in Jordan indicated a what? A cleansing. See? All right, now the same way with the priesthood, with all their wash, 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 they were merely emphasizing the need for a spiritual cleansing. The water couldn't do it. It was just a picture of the cleansing aspect, preparing these priests for the priesthood. Now, remember I told you a couple programs back, lock that up in your computer? When Israel was told that every Jew was to be a priest of God, what little rite had to happen first before they were ready for the priesthood? They had to be washed. And how did they experience that symbolic washing? With their baptism.
Now, that's all you can put on it. Now, when we come to... Uh, oh, I'll probably skip something that I don't want to skip, but my time is running out. You come to the baptism of Jesus. That has been a big question for, I imagine, millions of people. Well, why did Jesus have to be baptized? He didn't have any sin to repent of. He had no need for that. But again, he came to be a prophet, priest, and king. And in order to fulfill all the requirements of the priesthood again, symbolically, what did he have to experience? The washing. See? And so as he went down in that baptism of Jordan, he symbolically fulfilled the washing of the priesthood. And at the same time, he identifies himself with his covenant people, the nation of Israel. You see how everything just holds together? There's a reason for it, but we have to understand. Thank you for joining us again for Through the Bible with Les Feldick. If you'd like to order audio tapes, videos, or any of our printed material, you may do so by writing Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. That's Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. Or you can call us toll-free if you'd like at 1-800-369-7856. That's 1-800-369-7856. Remember, this is a faith ministry, and your participation with us is greatly appreciated. Again, our address is Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. And our phone is 1-800-369-7856. Thanks again for listening, and please join us next time for Through the Bible with Les Feldick.